Welcome to another edition of Inside Expert Podcast, and we're very thankful once again to be here and to bring you another segment, a very special segment, this one, actually, and joining me all the way from down under in Australia, Western Australia, Tom Moody. Tom, hello to you. How are things? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Bish, and uh, good to hear your voice, and uh, looking forward to this particular segment as well. Should have said good night to you and good afternoon to you, Freddie Wilde from the UK. You're a very happy man today. <laughs> yeah, things are beginning to ease uh, in the UK, so we're uh, a few weeks behind you guys in, in terms of that. But um, yeah, our, our daily lives are beginning to return to normal, so that's that's quite nice. We talked about this being a special podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. We had Dale Stain, the South African fast bowler, who graced us with his presence, talking to Tom. This week, we've got Australia's coach, a former opening batsman, a former batsman, uh, Justin Langer, Tom Moody. I suppose uh, an admirer of yours, a former teammate of yours. In many ways, you've mentored him to some extent. Talk a little bit about Justin. Uh, look, Justin, uh, I've got enormous amount of respect uh, and a strong friendship with him. I've, I've known him since he was very young when he first came into the Western Australian side as a, a very determined, and you wouldn't say um, a player that you thought, oh, wow, you know, a natural talent like you would see in a Brian Lara, for instance, but someone that had all the other attributes in spades. Uh, when you talk about Justin Langer and reflect on his career, there's there's a few things that that come to my mind, and that is the mental toughness that he has, the the the, the determination that he has to be a successful opening bat, and what he would be prepared to put himself through to be successful, and the work ethic. Uh, he was someone that worked harder than anyone else. Uh, whether that was because he felt that that was the only way he was going to be successful. But I think a lot of those traits that I just mentioned, Bish, were, were areas that have moulded him as a coach. I think what we're seeing in his relatively early years as a coach is that, yes, you can see that mental toughness uh, as something that he admires in players, Yes, he's incredibly determined and he wants his players to have that same hunger. And he's got this Australian team working very, very hard. What I found interesting, though, Bish, is that you also know Justin Langer quite well because I think you may have bowled the very first ball to him in Test cricket at the Adelaide Oval and it didn't hit the middle of his bat, it hit the middle of his head. Yeah, poor fellow. Um... He ducked into it, really. I take no credit for that whatsoever, um, short in stature. So it was memorable. Justin often talks about that, and he gives after-dinner speeches about that, actually. So we're here to talk about Justin Langer, the coach, not Justin Langer, the player. Let's have a listen. Jill, um, welcome to our Cricket Expert podcast, and thank you very much for giving up your valuable time to join us here uh, to just give us some insight into your second career, I suppose, uh, burgeoning career. Now, you take your mind back to a 22-year-old, fresh-eyed, walking onto the field at the Adelaide Oval to start your international career. Did you ever conceive that you would end up 
in this position leading the coaching scenario for Australia? Not really, Bish, to be honest. I, I always was a, um, I really was a great admirer of Bob Simpson. He's a tough coach. Whoa, he's a tough man. And <clears throat> I was really fortunate to have some really great coaches along the way. But something that always sticks in my mind, actually, is that because I was an opening batsman at the end of my career, I used to always marvel when the toss went up and we're batting first and all the bowlers were getting all happy and because I'd have to bowl that day. And I had to put my pads on. I was really nervous. I'm just about to walk out to bat. And the coach would just be sitting down to have a coffee. You know, and they're relaxing. They're sitting down to have a coffee. They're probably a bit nervous. But I always thought, hmm, I wonder if I would do that one day. Just when all the pressure's on and the game's on. And that's my, one of my favourite things about being coached now, Bish. Just before the first ball's bowled, I always get myself a little coffee and sit there, take a big deep breath and say, okay, all my work's done now. Now I can just watch the game. Whereas when I was a player and you had to walk out, the work's not done, the work's just starting, right? So, um, so I never ever thought I'd necessarily be coach of Australia, but um, I'm glad I am now. But the other, sorry, the other interesting thing, Bish, is that back in 1995, two years after I made my test debut, when of course you bowled me my first ball, I went back to the Cricket Academy with Rod Marsh as a scholarship coach. So there must have been something in my mind back then that thought, well, if I don't make it in this game, maybe I could do some coaching one day. So I was lucky to have a long career playing and then very, very fortunate the way things have worked out with my coaching as well. So, so what else would have informed that decision? Because I remember there's a quote about your travails in 2001 and that tour to England when you thought your career was over. You, you sort of thereafter have told people you've been to the edge and back so let mm. me help you. Uh, what mm. else informed your coaching that you saw as an experience during your playing days? Well, I think um, actually as a coach now, one of the great benefits or advantages I've got is that I did play. And I honestly believe that. Um, I believe that having walked in the shoes of the, of the players I now work with, I have great empathy for them. I have great compassion for them. I know that what a hard journey international cricket is. In fact, I know what a hard game cricket is full stop. So, and one thing I always remind myself and I remind other coaches is never forget how hard the game is. And what's most interesting also to me now, Bish, is that we all want the players and the players want it now as well to be Ricky Ponting, the end product, or Glenn McGrath, the end product, or Michael Clark, the end product. But they forget that it took a long time and a big journey of ups and downs and adversity and success and great lessons along the way to become the final product. Um, and again, as coaches, we have to remember that. We, we, we can't have, there's not too many overnight successes, right? So I think that also helped me in my coaching career, uh, remembering that it was a really long, hard journey being a player. And that's something that I get benefit out of. The other thing I get benefit out of as a coach is being the father of four kids. <laughs> um, and being a parent, as there's no doubt, would, has helped me be a better coach because one thing I've learned, and it's taken me some time to um, evolve this understanding, but is you've got to treat everyone differently because everyone is different. Everyone's got a different personality. 
Every person's got different beliefs. Everyone's a different athlete. Everyone's got different abilities. And I think a mistake a lot of coaches actually make is they try and treat everybody the same. Or even worse, they try and treat them as clones of what we were like as players. And that's a big mistake. Everybody, everyone's different. And I guess the final point is when I first started coaching, Steve Rickson, the old veteran coach, now the tough old coach. And I remember him saying to me, Justin, just because you're a, he said I was a great player, I was a good player. He said, just because you're a great player doesn't mean you'll be a good, great coach. And I said, yeah, I understand that. But just because I was a good player doesn't mean I can't be a good coach either. Um, and, I, and I remind him of that every time I see him. Yeah, he was a tough man, just like yourself as well. So, so encapsulating that, Justin, um, you've coached at domestic level, Western Australia. You've coached with great success, the Perth Scorchers. Now you've taken Australia to number one in test rankings again and number one in the T20 rankings. So assess that for me and tell me, encapsulation, what makes a good coach in your view? Well, um, first, it's fascinating about the number one rankings because and success at the Scorchers because not once did we ever talk about that and we still don't. We don't talk about it. There's a lot of talk before I got this job that Australian cricket got caught up in win at all costs. Number one in the world. We're going to be number one in the world. But actually, Bish, not once in the last two years have I talked about that. But what I do talk about is our processes and to become a, to be a, a good player, the best players have great processes and the outcome look after itself. So I think there's a couple of things that um, make good coaches. Um, and I, I put it all under the um, guise of leadership, actually. Leadership's crucial. And the, um, where the word leadership come from, comes from is leading the ship. Yeah. So in leading the ship... Uh, and that's when I took it on at the Australian level, is the only time the, the, the leader or the leader or the captain of the ship should come out is when you see the iceberg. Think of the Titanic. Mm. Or when there's mutiny on deck. Think of um, the pirates of the Caribbean. Or when there's stormy waters. That's the only time the captain should come out. The rest of the time, he should just lead the ship in the right direction, let everyone do their job, whether it's the players or the other coaches, um, whether it's other people at Cricket Australia. But the leader of the ship comes out when there's crisis or when they need to come out. So um, I've learned that. So the leader should just, just, just lead the ship, guide the ship, unless something happens when they're going to come out and make a difference, right? So that's one thing. I think caring for your players, even though people say I'm the tough guy, but... One of the most important things about leadership is you've got to care for your players. You must care for your players and you must make them feel special. Um, the second thing is you must walk the talk. There's an old saying, Bish, if you preach excellence and walk mediocrity, you're nothing but a common liar. And the truth is anyone can talk a good game. Anyone can talk a good game. But that's not leadership. Leadership's walking it. And... It's like every pre-season, whether it's a, a cricket team or a football team or a hockey team or a business, they can come up with these values or these mission statements and they can put them in nice fancy posters and write them up on the wall. But unless you live it every single day, they don't mean anything. And that's, that's what I think is important about being a coach. You've got to walk the talk. You've got to care about your, your players. You've got to understand the game. <clears throat> More importantly, you understand the people. 
you, you touched on something there just now. You touched on, and I think in the past as well, that you want the Aussie team to be good people and not just great cricketers. Is all that you've said there your coaching philosophy? 100%. I think as a coach, you've got to know what you stand for. I talk to a lot of coaches and I say, number one is you must know what you stand for. And you must know what you don't compromise on. And in my, my case as a coach um, in the Australian team, it's been to make Australians proud of us again. That's been our goal. Not be number one ranked team, make Australia, because we need it. And also earn respect back from around the world because we lost a lot of respect and we certainly, the Australian public weren't proud of us. So that was the vision, that's what we stood for. But And then for me, it's about exactly that. And I don't say it. I mean, people who know me know that I'm very serious about this. It's about encouraging not only great cricketers, but also great people. And great people encapsulates the values that we talk about, professionalism and humility and honesty, um, mateship or friendship and learning. I mean, ever since I've been involved in Australian cricket, whether it was through Alan Border or Bob Simpson or Steve Waugh or Ricky Ponting, we keep saying the same mantra. As long as we wake up every day looking to get better, we can get better. So that... Um, value of learning and wanting to get better and being coachable is very important to me as well. And the last thing is elite fitness. It's really important um, for me that our athletes, they get paid to improve their skills and get fit. It's not a bad job, is it, Fish? <laughs> uh, it's a great job, Justin. A tough one, but a great one, very rewarding. Domestic coaching versus international coaching. What are the differences? Yeah. Well, my great friend who will be talking here, Tom Moody, one of, the, a couple, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that, and I'll say this, uh, I'll just say it as it was, he said it, it was his words really, but when I was coaching Western Australia and the Scorchers, I was able to say whatever I wanted to the media. Because like Tommy said, I'm the, I was a sweetheart of West Australia. So, and because I had developed such partnerships for so long, or such friendships and relationships with the media, I gave them a lot and I was absolutely honest and transparent. And I knew they wouldn't burn me and they really liked the fact that I was honest and transparent. But when I became an international coach, I remember Tommy, after three months, he called me down to his favourite coffee shop in Cottesloe. He goes, we need to have a coffee, I need to talk to you. Like my big brother giving me advice, right? And he said, I'm going to tell you this once, be very, very disciplined with what you say to the media. Because the interstate media, the international media, they don't care about you like they did in West Australia. So you must be very, very disciplined in what you say to the media. So, um, so that's the one biggest lesson I've learned domestically versus internationally. The second thing is, I start from point, the hardest thing is selecting teams. Because And where the starting point for me now, and I've only learned this over the last two years, but the starting point for me is... I can't win. Why? Simple. Because if I pick Ian Bishop, someone else will say I should have picked Kirtley Ambrose. If I pick Kirtley Ambrose, they'll say I should have picked Courtney Walsh. Or if I didn't pick Courtney Walsh, and everyone's got a different opinion on it. And the whole country and the whole world's got an opinion. So I start from the point where I can't win. So that's okay. So what I'll do is I'll, like always, I'll be diligent in all my preparation. I'll be diligent in making sure we get the right people and I'll go with our other selectors and we'll do it what we think from a very pure place. 
we're going to select the best 11 players who can play the next game for us because fish international cricket particularly like i know in the west indies they're very passionate about their cricket but in australia they're very passionate and everyone's got an opinion right. everyone's got an opinion so I, I for the first six months i really let it affect me and i've learned to get a lot stronger and wiser um and maybe a bit tougher in myself so now i just do the job um, from the purest of places and i pick the best people i can best players i can um, we, we encourage the players to behave well on and off the field. Um, that's all culture is, is behaviour. And if we behave well on and off the field, we have a great culture. If we behave poorly on and off the field, we have a poor culture. So we just make sure our behaviours and our people are the right ones when we select them. Yeah, you talked about that first six months. I was going to ask you that later down the road, if you didn't enjoy the first six months. But sticking with the theme of domestic and international cross-format coaching, test match cricket, and white ball cricket, T20, 50 over cricket. How challenging is that? Uh, well, it's time challenges, yeah. It's time challenges. So last year I was away probably 300 of the 300 days of the year. I didn't see my family a lot. Um, but my kids are a little older now. Like my oldest daughter is 23 um, and my youngest. And But my, my honest opinion is that if you're going to coach your country, there's a lot of discussion, isn't there? Um, Oh, you know, they should be split coaches. But that's not my opinion. That's not my opinion. My opinion is that someone should oversee it because let's, the reality is, is you've got to manage the same. So in our case, we've got five or six guys who play um, all forms of the game. And then the rest of the time, it's managing the players. And if, so let's say you're the coach, Bishop, of the white ball team, I'm the coach of the test team. Of course, I want the best players playing all the time in the test team. But of course, you want all the boys playing all the time in the white ball. And then you can, the, the challenge is, unless we are literally best friends and we have got absolute trust in each other and we're working together, that becomes problematic. So my opinion is, yeah, it's a strain of being, of being away a lot. But that's okay. I know what I signed up to. And my family knows what I've signed up to. So, um, and, and as it was with Western Australia, we... I coach the Scorchers, I coach Western Australia, different states do it differently, they split their coaches. But in my opinion, it's not the way to go. And it's one of the first things I said when I was offered the job, let's be really clear. Um, we can have some great coaches, we can have a lot of people help. You would have noticed that I had Ricky Ponting and um, Steve Waugh were there for the Ashes in the World Cup. I surround myself with great people. I've got some uh, really good assistant coaches now. I've got great support staff. So, Everyone's got this view that, oh, oh, it's a strain on Justin Langer. But I'm telling you firsthand, you hear it from the horse's mouth, I think it's the only way it can work, particularly in Australia. So, so tactically, though, because you're talking different sort of uh, tactics and strategies, is it more important then, is it an option then to have the ultimate head coach but have different specialist coaches applying their thought processes to those different teams? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we do that. And pre-COVID, things are going to change now because budgets are going to be cut and it's going to be even more challenging. But pre-COVID, Bish, we do that. We've got amazing people who help us out with tests. I mean, last year was a great example. We had the World Cup and then the Ashes. Um, and yeah, so I guess I was overseeing the man management. We had amazing people helping us, being prepared for red ball cricket and then white ball cricket and then T20 cricket. So we, we have that. I mean, I, I used to have a, a saying in my office at the WACA and it said, 
I never went to Harvard, but I employ a lot of people who did. So in other words, I'm gonna employ people who are a lot smarter than me and a lot better than me, and I'm not gonna feel um, threatened at all about that because I know that we, I want our young players or all our players to be surrounded by the best people who are teaching the best tactics and teaching them the best ways to get fit or the best way to play their game. So I think we have great people around and that's a big lesson I've learned as a coach. If you think you can do it by yourself, you're a fool. What were the challenges, Justin, in having, let's say, a Western Australian team and, and that entire squad? So you've got to now have uh, squad members who play the long format of the game, but then you've got to intermingle those guys to play T20 cricket for the Perth Scorchers. Whereas in franchises like the IPL, as we discussed in our podcast, you've only got specialist T20 players. Hmm. How challenging is that to have to split your squads and manufacture your squads? Well, obviously in Australia, the, um, there's the, the BBL runs alone in that period. So there's no other cricket going on. So, uh, and, and look, Bish, you think about it, this, the, the, most of the really great players who play in the IPL, they can play all forms of the game, right? So, and I've honestly, I've said that for many, many years, the best players, the reason they're the best players and the reason they get paid the most money is they're able to adapt. They're the best, usually the best players in 2020 cricket and they're the best players in, um, in test cricket. Let's take Chris Gale, for example. Everyone says, oh, he's a T20 specialist. You know, he's a great T20. Well, he played 100 test matches. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's a scary test match batsman. Um, A.B. de Villiers. Oh, what a T20 specialist. Oh, yeah, but hang on. He's probably South Africa's greatest ever test batsman as well. You know, you look around Virat Kohli, Steve Smith, David Warner. The best players tend to adapt, and it's not diff much different. Mitchell Stark can play white ball 2023, and he can play test cricket as can Pat Cummins and mm -hmm. as can Josh Hazelwood's developing, as can Boomra, you know, the, the list goes on. So it's just a matter of, you know, the guys get paid the most money because they're the most talented and the, the responsibility for that or the challenge, they're going to play all year round, that's all. Let's stick with <clears throat> how you operate as a coach. Now, the Ashes docu-series was fascinating to watch. There was some real stuff in there you hear the sentiment that some coaches say you should be level with your emotions across the dressing room. You were recorded sort of kicking over a bin in that moment at crunch time. How do you treat with that notion of how does a coach operate in the dressing room? Yeah, look, I, I agree absolutely that, and my kids, my kids used to watch me coaching the Scorchers and they said, daddy, how do you stay so calm? And I said, well, it's, probably just a mask and it's very 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 rare for me to get emotional uh during the games but it was so funny bish because I, I was we were allowed to watch every episode and make suggestions to the producer or the director right and i remember ringing him i'm going but you cannot put in that bit where i kicked the bin <laughs> when nathan lyon missed that run out he goes i said they will think i'm crazy like I, and he said yeah but did you see what you did next I said, what do you mean by did next? Nathan Lyon, we're going to lose the ashes and da, da. He goes, no, no, but you, you picked up all the rubbish. And I went, what do you mean I picked up all the rubbish? He goes, watch the scene again. You kicked over the bin and you, then you picked up all the rubbish. And he said, for two years you've been talking about one of the values is elite humility. He said, there's humility right there. And I went, oh, okay. 
I'll trust you if you want to put that in. And every, so many people have asked me about that scene and I can tell a funny story about it, but that's the truth. I was talked into it because again, walking the talk, they said, you talk about being humble, you kick the bin over in a moment of emotion, but then you just stopped. Even though there's four runs to get and there was that big appeal and the LBW off Stokes and we had, didn't have a replay, said so you stay so calm after that. So a long-winded answer, I think it's crucial that the coach, and one of the, one of the um, actually one of the mistakes I see in a lot of coaches is they still think they're players and therefore they're very emotional. But as a coach, and I remember Jimmy Adams, our friend Jimmy Adams, I mean, what a gentleman of the game. I remember talking to him at Lords years ago, Bish, and I said, Jimmy, you're going to become a coach? He goes, I got some advice once. I'll become a coach when I know 100% my playing days are finished. And he said, back then, my playing days still aren't finished. I'm still a player. And I knew 100% when I hit my, played my last ball for Somerset, I never wanted to play cricket again. That was a good sign. But, and if you, can, if you can let go of that, still being a player when you're a coach, and it's a, it's a challenge for coaches, but when you can let go of that, then you can become a lot calmer coach. The other aspect is that there were generations before where you had the hard-nosed coach and some of the modern coaches espouse the, the statement that you've got to treat the modern player in a, in a certain way, a different way. How does, what's your advice, what's your experience in sometimes being hard? Can you be hard on the player or do you have to kind of walk a tightrope on the modern player? Absolutely, you can be hard on the player. If they, if they don't live up to the values and expectations of the team, then of course, they, well, you don't have to be confrontational, but the art of leadership is that, and, and developing a culture and environment of success fish, if someone does the right thing, you give them a hug or you give them a pat on the shoulder and say, that's well done, that's how we do it around here. But if they don't, you've also got to have the courage to say, no, no, that's not how we do it around here. And the problem is most people find is they want to be popular. They haven't got the courage to pull someone up one way or the other. So sometimes it's confrontational. If it needs to be, sometimes you have to escalate your emotions. But other times, 99% of the time, you stay nice and calm. But I used to have a rule at the whacker because I like joking around with my players. I love my players, Bish, and I joke around. And I always say to them, if I, the more I take the mickey out of you, it's a sign of affection. But I used to say, but, but, if I ever call you into my office and close the door, then you know I'm serious. <laughs> and people don't want to come into the office, but if they did, then they knew I was serious. And I said, the rest of the time, trust me, you take all this fun and banter and a joke, but if you come into my office or I look you in the eyes and tell you something, then I'm being serious. And, you know, you just got to get the mixture right, the balance right as a coach. But I, I remember before I was given, I was the head coach of Western Australia. One of the journalists said to my uncle, oh, JL, he'll never be a very good coach because he's too tough. That kids these days don't like discipline. That's not, again, a, a bit like my opinion on, um, on being the coach in all three forms. That's not what I see, Bish. I see kids want, or young players, they want, it, certainly my experience, is they want discipline, they want boundaries, they want guidelines, they want leadership. That's what I see. So I keep hearing this about these young, and these young guys are playing in the Australian cricket now. 
my gosh, they are magnificent young men. They, they get a bad rap, youngsters, because they get paid a lot, they get a bad rap these days. They're all so polite, they're so well-mannered, and they want leadership, they want fatherly figures, they want leadership, they want mentorship. And that's what I enjoy about coaching. Yeah, that, that reminds me of something I, I read the other day. Father, uncle, brother, headmaster, policeman, therapist, soap opera, director, all of those yeah, things you right. see, you have to be as a coach. Yeah, you have to be. You have to be fish. Sometimes my great friend Andy Hurry, who's the head, um, director of cricket at Somerset, he summed it up beautifully for me. He said, being a head coach, it's a bit like being the father of teenage boys. When everything's going well, they do not want to know about you. When things aren't going so well, they need their part. They need their dad to look after or help them out, right? And that's a bit like being coaching. But all those things you just said, they're absolutely spot on. I still, I still stand by that. And the end of that quote is that I leave the bat and ball stuff for my specialist coaches so that I can do that sort of man management. Is that the template? Oh, it is for me now. It's amazing. Because you got to remember, when you're a player, you look after yourself, right? You obviously... You're a good person and you look at and you play within the team, but you're looking after yourself because you've got to go about your business and score runs or take wickets. But when you become a coach, you're, not, you're looking after everyone else. You're looking after all the players and sometimes you look after the players' partners or the players' families. Then you're looking after the support staff, which has gone from when I've played that first test test against you guys in 93. We had Bob Simpson. And we had Errol Orcott, the physio. That's it. Now, there's a, there's a cast of thousands. Right. You know, and the more people you deal with, you get very little time for specialist coaching now. So um, that's just part of the gig. I mean, rightly or wrongly, that's part of the gig um, in this world of professionalism where we're all looking. I don't think it's greedy. I think everyone's just looking for a competitive advantage. Some countries or some states or some franchises are more fortunate to have the resources to be able to find different advantages. Um, but yeah, most of the time it's just directing this, direct, directing the traffic and making sure the players are happy and ready to play good cricket and making sure the staff are happy and ready to support the best they can. As, as, as we sort of wind down, Justin, you were reputable for your mental toughness, um, for your discipline and, and your training regime, et cetera, et cetera. With players now, just looking at them from a coaching perspective, that whole concept of mental toughness. Are guys like Steve Smith, et cetera, able to perform Marcus Labuschagne as he did in England, able to perform in those tough situations because they're mentally tough? Or is it that they have the skill set that is so well ingrained that allows them to fit in and be tough in those situations? Which chicken and egg, which comes first? No, I think both. I think peak performance is a synergy between the mental and concentration and ability to just and skill. I, I think it's really fascinating discussion this because there's a there's a golfer by the name of Lindsay Stephen. He was an old professional Australian, a very good golfer. I was at dinner with him many, many years ago. And everyone says, oh, it's, you know, it's 90% mental and it's 10% skill, right? And he, I'll never forget him saying this to me. He said, no, actually, I don't agree with that. I said, what do you mean? That's what everyone says. He said, well, this is the way I think. If I'm a golfer and I've got a perfect swing and that which allows me to hit the ball down the middle of the fairway more often than not, then I can work on my concentration. But if I've got a really poor swing 
and I hit the ball behind the trees all the time. I don't care how mentally tough it is. It's hard to get out behind the trees and you lose confidence. So you've got to have both. It's like being a fast bowler, Bish. If you're a fast bowler and you're really tough and strong mentally, but you've got a really poor action or things aren't going right and you get stress fractures or you hurt yourself, well, it doesn't matter, right? Because you can't make, take wickets if you're in rehab. So the point is, to me, optimal performance, um, elite performance is a synergy between the mental and the, the technical. And I don't think, personally, I don't think, and all the great players, they must be doing something right. They, Steve Smith looks different, but he must be doing some basics right. Brian Lara had a backswing that's nearly hit his right hip. And everyone said, well, you can't coach that, but he must be doing something right because, and I'll never forget Gary Sobers saying, he said, it doesn't make sense, this coaching. He said, all the greatest players all get written off as freaks. So we don't train anyone, our kids like that, because they're just freakish talents. But he said, that doesn't make sense. If they're the best players, why don't we teach our kids to play like that? And that makes perfect sense to me, you know. So I think there's the, you must have the synergy, you must have the desire, you must have the hunger, you must have the understanding of why you're doing it. Because if you don't, then you're not going to get better anyway. Justin, do you do you take your work home with you, or are you thinking, <laughs> how do I improve this team 365 days a year? As a coach, your advice, your experience. Yeah, I do, yeah. It's so <laughs> good funny. Is so that a good or bad thing? This is, well, this is true, right? Before the start of the season, last season, we went, had all the coaches and all the staff there, and they were doing, okay, they're asking everyone, what's your um, professional development goal for this year? And I said, I'm going to play more golf. And they all laughed. I said, no, no, I'm dead serious. I'm going to play more golf. Because my dad's been telling me, Ricky Ponting's been telling me, my friends have been telling me, you gotta, because what that means is it allows me to get away from just, because my whole life is professional development. If you look around my office, I've got books everywhere. I've got a library of books. I listen to podcasts. I'm talking to people all the time and I'm thinking about how we can get better all the time. So you've got to have ways. I'm very, I've loved this isolation period. I actually see my kids every day, Bish. You imagine that? I see my kids every day. And I eat home-cooked dinners, not Uber Eats or room service or restaurant food. I'm loving being home and learning and living. And it's been a really beautiful time for personally and for my family. Um, but I've also started playing. Go Last year during the World Cup, Ricky Ponting took me to Callaway in London. And Callaway fitted me up and got me some brand new golf clubs. Right, And I, took, and I got back to my hotel in London. And they are like, I used to love my new cricket bats, Bish. I've got these brand new golf clubs. And they're sitting in my room. I was like looking at them like a kid at Christmas time. These beautiful new Callaways. And now I'm addicted. I love playing golf. And thanks to Ricky Ponting and to Callaway, now I play all the time. But it's actually a very, very important um, part of my coaching that I can, and I can use it as a social to talk to my players or talk to my staff or just get out of, out of the hotels or I can play with my dad once a week when I'm in Australia. So that's a nice thing to do. So, so, so you found something. You say to your players, stay off social media. That's your advice to them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Why? Well, before, before I say that, Bish, the funny thing is when I first became coach of Australia, about five or six of the boys would carry their golf clubs on tour. And when I first started playing, we got beaten 5-0 by uh, coaching, 5-0 by England. We got beaten by Pakistan. 
And I was going, this is a joke. We're meant to be, you know, playing cricket for Australia. All these boys are bringing their golf clubs. Da, 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 da. And now I'm the first one who brings the golf clubs. Because <laughs> I know when you're on the road for 300 days a year, um, you need to have an outlet. Now, on the social media, if I could give anyone advice, any aspiring, I try and tell my kids, but my kids won't listen. They love the social media. But if I could tell my kids, oh, sorry, any young athlete about stay off social media. Because this is, I learned this from Sachin Tendulkar years ago. He said, I don't need anybody telling me if I'm going well. And I don't now need anyone telling me if I'm going poorly. I know. So why would I let strangers tell me I'm really bad or I'm really good? It doesn't make sense. And the problem is, and you and I both know this, I mean, people can be very mean-spirited, Bish. So, and I think there's enough distractions. The game's hard enough as is. During the, um, the Ashes in the World Cup, we banned newspapers from our team bus and our um, change room. And people go, what do you do that for? They're big boys. I said, yeah, but it's one distract, one thing we can control. We don't have them in the change room because we don't, you know, it's like in England, <laughs> and especially if you're an Australian, and especially if you're Australians and put sandpaper on the ball, my gosh, they're not saying too much nice stuff about you. So why would we keep why would we keep reading that? Why would we keep haunting ourselves with that? So one of the things about mental toughness is eliminating distractions. And for me, media, social media, unless you learn to control that, and unless you have strategies for that, it would literally drive you crazy as a player or as a coach. Justin, let me get you out of here on this one. Uh, and thank you very much for your time. And I'm glad you answered the, um, the lockdown question of the last two months with your family. That should have been my entry point. Um, you said as players, we are conditioned to think wins, losses, runs, wickets. But you see the big picture. Just end off on what you mean by that for me. Well, I think it's very important, Bish. If, if it's only about win, loss and making money, it can be quite a shallow shallow business as certainly as a coach i know that as a coach now but um so i think you've got to you can call it you can call it the great coaches the great great visionaries so whether you call it vision whether you call it higher purpose whether you need to know what's getting you out of bed every day and for me it's been making australians proud of us again well, obviously it's more fun winning than losing right it's more fun making a hundred than a duck. It's more fun taking five wickets than getting none for a hundred. That's more. That's just we're human beings, right? So it's more fun winning than losing. But for me, you've got to have a vision of what gets you out of bed every day. And for me, it's a lot more than just winning or losing or making some money, because money can dry up and there's lots of wins and losses. So for me, that's what it's been. Fish. It's been the um, the vision or the um, higher purpose, if you like, to make Australians proud of us again. Hopefully we've shown by our behaviours and the way we're playing, um, we've become a lot more likeable team and we're still a very competitive team, um, shown by the current rankings. So um, it's been a great challenge. Um, we're nowhere near where we need to be yet, but gee, it's been a great journey. The old saying, Bish, it's the journey, not the destination. You know, it wasn't until I watched episode seven of that documentary when I realized that I really love my job and I really love my players and I just can't believe how lucky I am to be involved in sport since I was 19, 18 or 19 years. I'm still involved in, in um, and coaching the Australian cricket. I pinch myself every day. It's stressful. It takes its toll. Um, but, you know, I'm a very lucky man, Bish. I pray every day and say thank you. I write my... Uh, 
my gratitude journal every night and I say thank you to the big man and say thank you that, you know, how lucky I am to live the life I do and still be involved in the game I love. So you, this is really your nirvana as you described it, I think, somewhere. Oh, yeah. Well, I described this um, period of lockdown as my nirvana because I see my kids every day. But actually, my life's nirvana. I'm, I, honestly, I can't tell you. I, this is a true story just to finish off. But when I was uh, 17 years old, when my mother passed away a few years ago, she left me a few things. Um, and one of the things, we did this time capsule. So a time capsule when I was seven, that was 1987. And the idea was we'd write a little letter to ourselves. And in the year 2000, so 13 years later, we'd get it back and we'd all read it. So just see what happened in our lives in 13 years. So I've got the letter in my office here and it said, along the lines, I'm a real crossroads at my life right now. I'm 17, like seriously. Um, I said, but I don't know what should I do. Should I go and study? Should I go and work? Should I play cricket? Should I play football? And then I wrote these words. Imagine if someone could write me a contract right now to say that I could play cricket for Australia and be involved with Australian cricket for the rest of my life. I wrote that when I was 17 years old, Fish. Wow. I'm now 50 years old and I've been involved in Australian cricket all this time. So the, the, the and I was only talking to Mitchell Marsh today. And I said, and I don't know why, and I spoke to a whole lot of aspiring coaches this morning. I said, I don't know why this is the case, but one bit of advice I'd give anyone is when you have your dreams and your goals, write them down. I don't know what, I'm not a scientist, I'm not the big man, but when you write down your goals, it's amazing the power in that. And I've found that throughout my life and it's um, something that I, I pass on to all our players, that's for sure. Justin, that is remarkable, that is fantastic. Thank you very much for your kindness of your time. I know you're a very busy man, even in lockdown, with your girls, uh, with your players, all your children. We really appreciate this on Pipside Experts. Thanks, Bishop. It's so good to see you, my friend. You're a lot, you're a lot more fun to look at now. <laughs> you know, I faced you as a 22-year-old. Still the fastest, scariest bowl I ever faced in my life. But, mate, great respect, Bishop. This is a great thing about cricket, isn't it, Bishop? After all these years, we're still sitting here talking about the game we love and friendships and memories from all our, our gladiator days. So great to see you, Bishop, and stay healthy. And I hope your family and... All the listeners are all happy and well. Take care, mate. Thank you very much, Justin. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Great to hear from Justin. Great to hear his thoughts on the coaching aspect of it. Tom, what jumped out and stood out to you the most, if you have to pick one thing from all that Justin has said? It's a, it's a tricky one for me, Bish, because, you know, I, I know him so well um, and we still live in the same state and share the same cafe when we go and have a, have a coffee and talk about the game. Um, but what I do know is how Justin has evolved as a coach. Justin Langer, the coach, when he first took over Western Australia and the Scorchers, um, for that period of time, I think it was a five-year window, to then become um, involved with the Australian cricket team has evolved as a coach over that period of time. He's a very different coach now than he was then. And I think uh, he would be the first to admit that he is constantly evolving. And I think 
that to me is a very, very positive sign of a, of a very mature uh, and certainly not a complacent or insecure person or coach purely on the basis that he's very grounded and wants the best for the team. Freddie Moose. Yeah, I mean, interesting that you say that because I think one of, the, one of the things that I find fascinating from a sort of coaching perspective, particularly with given that most coaches are former players, they come into that job having been, you know, in Langer's case, you know, a, a test match legend. He absolutely, you know, batting was something that he was naturally very good at. And you're then thrown into an, a very similar environment, but you're doing a different job. And I think that I suppose it must take some sort of um, you've got to be self-aware enough to know that, hang on, what I'm doing now is different to playing. I'm, you know, I'm learning to a degree on the job and that sort of, um, you know, to, to what degree a, a coach has to continue to learn and can't just come into the job with a preconceived way of how things are going to be done um, because it's a very different role, as I'm sure you know, to actually playing. So, yeah, that sort of, um, you know, it's interesting you talk there about his evolution and growth as a coach. And I think we saw some of that come through in the, in the documentary. Obviously, it was on Amazon um uh, around australia over the last couple of years there were some really interesting things from him about how he is you know learning on the job uh, and what the one thing that stood out for me that was 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 very interesting was how he sort of saw his job as a facilitator like he was there to empower the players who are obviously you know we're talking about international cricketers these guys are very talented and and, and they're very good at what they do and a lot of the work, hard work has been done. So he sort of, you know, was very much saying, you know, my job is to get them into the best position possible so that come 11 o'clock on day one, they're ready to perform. And not only from a player's perspective, but also empowering coaches. You know, he had last summer, he had Steve Waugh with, with the team and then Ricky Ponting with the team, two fantastic players. And he was saying there as well, my job's just to sort of allow them to go and do what they do best. And I found that quite interesting. We, he came out with that quote, didn't he, of saying that uh, he has a philosophy where he didn't go to Harvard, but he employs people that did. Mm. And yeah. his version of that is Ponting and Steve Waugh. They're the Harvard graduates of test cricket or of cricket in general. So, um, And I think that is a great skill in leadership because at the end of the day, coaching is a leadership. It's a form of leadership. Um, and if you have the security, the humility as, uh, as a person to be able to bring in valuable assets to your environment without feeling threatened, I think the, the whole group and the organisation is going to benefit enormously. But so often we see in a coaching environment, and not only just in sport, but in a business environment as well, where leaders in their industry avoid uh, promoting the best possible people purely because they fear it could undermine their position in the so-called pecking order where Justin doesn't have a position. He just is trying to facilitate a very positive learning environment. I, I, I want to come back to those technical things a little bit later, Tom, but one of the things that jumped out to me and for Freddie in that interview Many things, but but one thing he said he's father, uncle, brother, headmaster, policeman, therapist, soap opera director. He is all of those things to players, and he leaves the technical stuff to the specialist coaches that he has. Now, I remember coming through uh, my cricketing journey when I was playing under 19 cricket, I had a coach called Theodore Cuffey who 
played senior in uh, regional cricket at the time, and he was like a father figure to me. As I came into the senior team of Trinidad and Tobago, he was there as well, and he became more of a technical advisor. And then as I got into the West Indies team, it was more of requiring initially someone to game plan for me. How do you view that moves, the development of the person from being a head coach as opposed to looking at the technical side? Yeah, look, it's a very interesting one because in, a, in an international environment and even at the elite franchise environment, you, you need to, in a way, remove yourself from the technical side of things, even though that you may have a particular strength in that department, whether it be with the bowlers or with the, with, with the batsmen, purely because it's, it's more important that you don't um, see yourself as a threat or they don't see you as a threat when you're talking technique or strategy to that player. You, you need a, 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 you know, someone in between you and the player that is that confidant that they can share information without feeling threatened. And the head coach's position is someone that does wear many hats. And those hats really depend on the different personalities you've got in your group, whether that be playing personalities or support staff personalities, because you're managing two different layers. You're managing the players, which is one layer, and then you're managing your support staff, which is another layer. So you're wearing many different hats where your messaging is very important and needs to be very specific to those individuals to make sure you're getting the right message across. The other layer, which I should add, is the franchise layer. And that's the one above you, which is the owners. And the, the key, one of the really important keys to the head coach is managing that layer, which I call the ceiling, making sure you're keeping the ceiling up and not letting that ceiling come down and create unnecessary uh, pressure to the playing group. So you're sort of, you're managing all those types of things. So when it comes to also being the specialist with the ball or with the bat, you, d you don't have time to do it all. So you need to portion your time very carefully and trust the people that you've got underneath you, whether it be your batting, bowling, fielding, physio, trainer, whatever it might be, to do the job that you believe they can do. What stands out, Moods, about both those two things, the, the ceiling you mentioned sort of above and, and then the support staff below, is these two are probably quite modern phenomenons in that in the last 20 years or so, well, certainly with the, the, the um, advent of owners and, and in domestic T20 sides, that's very new to cricket. But then also we've seen in the last 20, 25 years, the support staff around teams grow massively. And, and you guys, you know, better place than me to say, when you guys were playing, how many people did you have in the you know sort of backroom staff compared to nowadays? I think there was a famous photo a few years ago when England went on an Ashes tour when there were as many people in tracksuits, i.e. support staff, as there were in whites. Um, and that's sort of indicative of the fact that that network of people, not only batting and bowling coaches, but analysts, you know, physios, dietricians, all of these things. There are so many people now to sort of delegate that the role must have changed a lot from when, you know, even when you guys were playing in the 90s. Yeah, look, you, you know, I think the title of coach is, 
is nearly outdated, where it's nearly like in English football, uh, where it's a manager. Because um, that's effectively what you're doing, is you're managing the environment to create a, a winning culture with the, the, with the expertise at your fingertips. Um, and ideally, you want that expertise to be hand-picked because you need people that, one, you can trust, and two, can facilitate the job that you believe is required for the side to be the success you want it to be, whether it be over the short or the long term. So do you think that the skills that are demanded now of a coach, or as you've called, just called it, a manager, are becoming, is it becoming less important that you do know the technical side of things? And is it more a sort of more general strategy outlook or man management? Are they the skills that are maybe now more important? And because you can say to Ricky Ponting or Steve War as your batting coach, can you go and deal with some technical issues? Is it less important that you have those skills or do you still see it as an important thing, but maybe something you just don't use as often? Well, what's non-negotiable in my view is is your managerial skills, your communication skills, your ability to to engage individuals and engage groups to one common cause. That's non-negotiable. So you need to be that needs to be without a question a strength. You need a, a clear philosophy and strategy to how you. Uh, believe that organisation, whatever it may be, whether it be a, a country, whether it be a, a first-class side or a franchise, to to uh, a positive direction forward. Um, and I I think that it's still important to have a, a very good understanding of the game. What aspect of the game that is, I don't think is relevant. So I don't think just because you may have a bowling pedigree or a batting pedigree or whatever it may be, it, that doesn't really matter, but I think it's an advantage that you have played the game because you, you, you've got a sense of what it feels like, you've got a sense of what it smells like, and I'm not saying because of that that if you haven't played the game, you're not going to be a good coach because we've seen in the past some very successful coaches that haven't played the game for a very long period or if any period at all at first class level. So I'm not saying that's a non-negotiable from that side, but I think there's an advantage if you have played the game. And Justin did mention that as well in his uh, chat with Bish, how he felt that uh, having that connection with the game is very, very important. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask, which I didn't get around to ask Justin, that is, is whether that that philosophy that we're all discussing here, <clears throat> whether Tom and Freddie, I want to hear from Freddie if what he's seen connects with this, whether this is a general template or there are going to be slight or differences from coach to coach, Tom, how much variance can we have from these philosophies depending on the type of or different coach? Yeah, I, be I, I believe that it is going to be different because everyone has got their own style and own method, own philosophy, and I think that's really important. I don't think that uh, there is a template that we all need to follow and because I think players can see through if you're not being genuine, and I think mm. it's really important that you are genuine and true to yourself. And I think everyone's obviously aiming towards the same goal, but everyone's got a different route to that journey. Um, I think the other thing to understand is that 
the environments that you work in can be very, very different. And it's important that you have the ability to adapt your style to different cultures that you may be working in. You can't um, go into some cultures like you like you may do in in a Western world as you as as you would in the East where you know you, you you need to understand where people come from, how they receive messages and and not be offended by you know poor communication as I would call it. Yeah, just just on on that. I mean, I think that the key thing there to sort of um, you talk about is there sort of a one size fits all way of going about it. I think you know, Moods is right. I don't think there can be. And I think the main reason for that is not only is every coach different, but every player is different, and therefore every environment that you're going into is different. And just from from an analyst perspective, I know that there are players who I've worked with who will receive information in a certain way. Um, it might be I could just send them a, a set of numbers in a text and there'll be other players who want to watch a video or there are other players who don't even want any numbers at all but want me to sort of tell them something without overbearing them with information. And the point is there that everyone learns differently. Um, there are different methods of learning. Some people are visual learners or or like to actually do things. And these you have to cater for the differences in individuals. And then that has expanded to a team level. And I think the point that Mood's made about culture is, is massive because particularly in cricket, you, you, you know, um, the, the range of cultures that you come across is enormous. Um, you know, in, in, in football for soccer, for example, over here, you know, in Europe is sort of the hub largely for that. And, and whilst there are different cultures there, I think there's probably more similar in sort of uh, learning and lifestyle than maybe you're going to get from going from Australia to the Caribbean to Pakistan. To Bangladesh, there are huge differences there, and I can imagine, you know, having to move around the world and adapt to those different cultures is is a huge challenge. And if you were to just take one single method of coaching and try to apply it to all of them, it it wouldn't work. So, okay, I, I like that. I like the sound of that because I'll take that even further and throw it out there. When I started playing cricket for the West Indies, Vivian Richards was the captain. You will not get a stronger personality than him. He basically, we didn't have a coach initially when I started. He ran the team. There was a manager, but he ran the team. Even when a coach came in, he was still, I can't remember where he interacted with the coach. He, he, he was the man in charge. So you move further along and you might have a younger captain. That dynamic of, what type of coaching philosophy you bring in when you have a strong captain versus when you have maybe a slightly more inexperienced leader? Yeah, look, I I believe that a coach ne nearly needs to be chameleon-like. So he adapts to his environment. So if you're going into an environment where you've got an established, strong coach like Sir Vivian Richards, you need to understand that his natural leadership style is a style of control. He likes to be the boss. But what you can do is be very, very clever and powerful by supporting that and filling the gaps that he may, may be missing. So in that situation, there may be a number of players that aren't getting the message that Viv Richards is passing on or a or a captain of that strength is passing on. And you need to have the awareness around how you can make that leadership group even stronger. Because ultimately, the coach and the captain are a partnership. 
it's really like a marriage in any team. And you as the coach needs to, needs to be the one that is flexible enough to be able to make that a very strong relationship. And there are gaps that you need to fill, but you need to identify what those gaps are. And there's also an opportunity through that relationship to grow together and help that captain, regardless of how strong he may be, to evolve as well. Because some of his leadership styles and methods may not be connecting as well as what he thinks they are. And you can slowly make that approach through a strong relationship to be able to help him slowly evolve as a coach without him seeing or anyone seeing that it's a power grab here. It's simple case of we're trying to help each other become a stronger unit. One thing that we've mentioned today was that you know the coach is becoming a bit more like a manager in football, and this I think is the key area where cricket does differ to football, and that is that captain-coach relationship in football. You are able to be uh, the, the football manager is is uh, very much uh, a, someone who will define the way that that team plays. You know, Mourinho and Guardiola, for example, have become very famous managers by breeding a style of football that is very distinctive to what they do in cricket because of the the importance of the on-field captain. Um, there is only so much, I think, that maybe you can do as a coach because at that point, once the, the players step out into the field, and whilst, you know, in, in T20 cricket in particular, now that there are strategic timeouts and all that kind of stuff, there's more chance for coaches to interact with the captain. But to a degree, you cede control to that to that guy. And I think, um, Moods, it's interesting you say, you know, how, how important you, you um, value that relationship because, you, you know, if you have that strong trust between yourself and the captain, you're able to feel confident that when you send them out there on the field, that you guys are still heading in the same direction because the captain is sort of on board with what you're doing, I guess. Yeah, and you have that trust. You have that trust. And look, cricket's a very unique game. Um, So that's why the, the leadership example, the captain example that you're giving with football or and, and cricket is very different because football, there are sort of, it's more of a set play, set attack or defensive approach where cricket has a lot more sort of um, different twists and turns over a day, let alone, forget a day, even an hour's play, that you need to be nimble and make those subtle changes to the field, to the bowling, to all those different uh, aspects of the game. But I think... What we've seen because of T20 cricket more so than 50 over cricket is the importance of the relationship between the coach and the captain become even closer to a strategic point where you could nearly map out your first over through to your 20th 20th over knowing exactly what the bowling changes are going to be when such and such comes into bat, we plan to bowl him and then we're going to follow another over of the left arm and then bring this other person back in. So there's a lot of that sort of pre-planning can be done, but still you need to be nimble enough to be able to think on the move. And also I think it's important to be able to allow a captain to have the freedom to go with his gut feeling. What are you feeling? You know, because what you predict the night before through your planning or the morning before with your planning may not be the reality on that day. The reality might be, oh, gosh, the wicket's so much slower than what we thought it was going to be. You know, 
we we can't afford to bowl, you know, four overs of player B. We need to make sure that, you know, this person comes into the game a lot earlier. So you also need to be quick enough to adapt uh, tactically out in the middle. That's also, I mean, it's also something that applies, you know, for, from in my job, from an analyst perspective too. Obviously, those plans that you talk about from, an e- you know, the evening before, you sit down and you can map out a lot of the innings. Um there's got to be an awareness and an acceptance on the part of the analyst and also the, you know, the coach as well, as you said, that when they get out there, yes, you may have come up with this certain plan. But as you said, this is a game played by humans on, 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 a, on a live pitch that, you know, we can't tell, you know, from all the way from the dugout, we, our, our view of it, it will be very different to the players. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, you have, as you said, you've got to trust the ability of those guys to go with their gut. Um, probably the best example of that is Dhoni at Chennai. He's done that often across his career. You know, he has a fantastic reader of the game um, and there's a number of times in the past where Dhoni's done decisions that have run very contrary to a lot of the sort of data analysis that might go into the game and, and it's worked out and that's because you know the game isn't played on a computer and there are times when you have to let the captain um, follow his gut and follow his instincts and I think you know that that um, that's a really interesting point and a really important one um, to, to sort of to bear in mind is, is to empower the players and that goes back to what to what um, JL said in the interview. And that it's about that trust as well, because we're talking about, I know one particular international coach who's always said to me, he allows his players to take ownership on the field. He's not a message sender of information onto the field. He says his players, he's willing to let them go through the scenario, Tom. If it doesn't work out for them, they'll discuss it later on. He's not going to berate anyone. That whole emotional level in the dressing room, how critical is it? Oh, look, it's absolutely critical because it's it's all the fabric of the relationship you have with your with your team. And if the players feel that there is that trust uh, between you as the coach and the support team and the players, it, it, it can be very, very powerful. And it's it's like any family as well, you know, with 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 kids. It's the same relationship, really. Um, you know, one one thing which I think is critical, uh, which is, I think, a, a key component to my philosophy around coaching is creating self-reliant players. Mm. You know, I think your role as a coach or my role as a coach is to create an environment where I am helping players become self-reliant because what I know over time as a former player and as a coach that's been around for some time is that when the game is played, when you're under pressure, you can only navigate your way through that if you have become self-reliant. If you're not looking over your left shoulder or your right shoulder, you're looking straight down the barrel at the opportunity of the challenge that faces you. And that to me is so important from a coaching perspective is you 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 help develop those players to become self-reliant and to trust their instinct and that they don't get scolded or or told off for making a judgment call when they felt at the time it was the right decision to make if anything that's celebrated so you're keeping that level temperament while a game is going on. You're sitting amongst the players. You're not kicking a bin, uh, as I joked with Justin Langer at one point during that Ashes series. Um, you're not swearing. You're not making huge emotional 
highs and lows to affect and impact the players negatively. Absolutely. You, you cannot afford to be emotional because players sense it. They then lose that, that, that ability to play instinctively and pay, play fearlessly. So often we hear that those words in commentary and in interviews with coaches on the sideline or players. But the reality is, is that the words are cheap, but creating that atmosphere where people feel they have that freedom to express themselves without the fear of failure is a very powerful environment to create. And how important is that in, in T20 in particular? Because T20 has given um, birth to a breed of, a sort of style of cricket whereby players are um, encouraged to take the aggressive option. And I think in the past, that's sort of the kind of, if, if someone was to charge down the wicket and be stumped, um, it's the kind of, from the media and the outside noise would often be very critical of that approach. Taking the attacking option was often be derided in cricket. Um, particularly across test in test matches, but in T20, so often that's the kind of attitude I think you want to encourage. You don't want players to go into their shell. So is that something that's sort of be accept, been accentuated by T20 cricket and, and and moods your experience in the IPL? Have you sort of tried to avoid criticising players when they have taken the aggressive option? I would only criticise. Um player and I probably won't use the word criticize but you know um, speak to a player in detail after a game if the player has taken a risk which is against the grain of what their own game plan is so I'll give you a simple example if someone is not a natural reverse sweeper and he gets out trying to reverse sweep Harbhajan Singh first ball I would question that strategy I would think that's a risk that is not part of his game plan. It's not part of his strategy against an off spinner. Why would he ever be thinking of a reverse sweep when there's two backward points? There's a fine backward point and there's a, a, a square backward point. What's the thinking behind that shot option? So again, that's a pressure moment. Players made the wrong decision under pressure. So that's a little bit different, but in general, if a player, if it's their natural game and it's something that is practice and it's an area of their strength and they get out playing like that, well, you know, that's not something you can criticise because, you know, the, the game T20 cricket in particular is such a high-risk game. If you're, not, if you're not taking that risk, you're not taking the game forward and you're never putting yourself in a position where you're going to be winning many games. I just want to tackle that because that was a question put to me, Freddie, in a sense, to ask Tom specifically because you talked about Tom having several teams in the past, Sunrisers, Hyderabad, strong bowling unit, Justin Langer when he was at Put Scorchers, really strong bowling unit. Then you have a Brendan McCollum who is now into coaching, who some people have described the way that he has led batting units, almost kamikaze, I think that's harsh, but an ultra-aggressive batting captain, totally, it would seem on the surface, different philosophies. Yeah, I think instinctively, um, Brendan McCullum will naturally lean that way, and whether he evolves, because again, we're talking the very first chapter of his coaching career, whether he evolves into... 
um, you know, having a, a greater balance in his oh. side. Time will tell us that. But, you know, I think that uh, at times, you know, certainly in my case, if I had a choice, I would be strategizing towards having a slightly stronger bowling unit than a batting unit because I just believe that over time that's going to it's going to be a you know give me more reward uh, on the win loss column but I've had a situation where I've had a team that I didn't have 100% control over the selection of during the Bangladesh Premier League where I had an incredibly strong top-heavy batting unit where I had Chris Gale, I had Brennan McCullum, I had Johnson Charles, um, and I had, you know, this this power-packed top order, which was wonderful, but we had to make that adjustment as a team with the what our expectations were. So instead of at the exit of the power play being happy at being one for 45 or one for 50, it was more like no, we're needing to be seventy, and 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 challenging those players to take us to that position, because I knew that we needed to be probably ten percent, twenty percent stronger with our batting um, arm to that game against our bowling unit, because because we had that great strength for their batting, it was compromised in our bowling. It just goes back to what we said at the beginning to a degree as well about being flexible and, and open to evolution. You can't, you know, you, as you said, you go into different cultures and, and different team environments and different things are asked of you and you're, pre- you're presented with a different squad. You inherit another person's squad. Um, and I, yeah, it sounds like the flexibility in your mindset is, is key or you're going to end up sort of forcing things on teams that aren't fitted for that or mm. on cultures that aren't fitted for that. Yeah, and also players. You know, players are very different too. You know, you can't you, you can't expect every player to train the same way. So you can't sort of the night before before a training session have a mapped out training session where you know I want Bishop bowling in the first net and I want him bowling to you know batsman A, B, and C, and I need him bowling for X period of time, but have you ever considered what Bishop, the fast bowler, needs in his preparation? He just doesn't need to bowl for an hour to service the batsman. He needs to bowl. He may want to work on his Yorkers. He may want to work with a new ball. He may want to specifically bowl to left-hand batsman because the next day the top three of the opposition that he'll be bowling to with a new ball may be left-handers. So you need to accommodate every single component in a team environment to make sure that they're taking away from a team in uh, from a team session uh, some sort of value so they're one prepared for their next contest or they're continuing to develop as players let's close this down and i'll preface my question here about where coaching is going where do we see coaching going given the formats when I played, obviously, there wasn't T20, but at different phases of my international career, post-injury, pre-injury, I required different things from a coaching setup. Justin talked eloquently about the fact <clears throat> that he doesn't mind, Freddie, to your question, I think you posed a couple of weeks ago, being the overall head coach for all formats, but having to bring in different specialist coaches to work on the different formats, and he just oversees this. 
given all of this, an evolving team, where do we see coaching going down the road? Well, I, I personally agree with Justin Langer, and I think there should be one head coach that oversees all the formats, and he facilitates the right people in the three formats of the game. Uh, there's going to be maybe one or two that might pollinate all three, or you may bring in specific specialists for red ball cricket and then white ball cricket. But I think you need the one head coach slash manager to oversee the whole team's philosophy, whether it be a country, whether it be a um, a first-class setup or a franchise. What is their what is their brand? What what is this team? If you look at this team on the field, if you follow them for a season, how do you identify this team against the other teams that they're playing against? And I only believe that can be done by one person at the at the you know at the the head of the ship. But that, I mean, that sort of in England, we've got um, Ashley Giles's director of cricket. I think is his title here. I mean that that sort of role has evolved, and he's almost someone who doesn't he's not on the ground with the team day to day, you know, all the time, but he's sort of that overarching vision. I completely get what Moods is saying about the need for that. You do need someone who's overseeing everything. My, my, you know, I'm far less well-versed in this area than Moods, having done it himself, but I sort of, the way that I see it going is slightly different to that. I think that as the formats, which is something we spoke about a couple of weeks ago um, in a podcast about how the formats are diverging, as they do become more and more different, I do think it will be harder for coaches to do that. I think that director of cricket role will continue to sort of exist overseeing it. But in England, for example, we've got Chris Silverwood, who, who is um, a head coach for all three formats. I wonder whether that role will become more difficult as the formats become increasingly different. And, and we said, you know, we said one of the main jobs now is the sort of strategizing behind it. You can, from a technical standpoint, you are maybe um, you're delegating roles and responsibilities to, to work with players very closely, but that strategy is massive. And as T20 strategy in particular evolves and becomes more and more distinct from test cricket, um, I think it will be it will be a very difficult job to sort of manage to, to straddle the different games effectively. Um, I suppose that's why there'll be such well-paid jobs for those guys who do get those top dollar jobs you know, at the end of the day. But um, it'll be interesting to see how that does unfold in the future. Hold on, Freddie. Hold on. This applies to the analyst as well, shouldn't it? Um, yeah. How, how, how flexible are you as the chief analyst? If you're doing test match cricket, you're doing your analytics with one group, then you have to do 50 over cricket, maybe with a different coaching group, then T20 with a different coach. Some maybe leave in analytics to a greater or lesser extent. Yeah, I mean, England recently have actually delegated their analysts a little bit more um, across format lines. Um, Nathan Lehman, who was the one of the sort of original analysts um, in that space has become far more focused recently on white ball stuff. Um, and that's maybe indicative of the fact of the way things are going. Um, as the games become more and more different, you need to you need to give more time over to learning and understanding how they work um, and, and therefore focus more on, on, on one format. Yeah, you've got white and red ball specialists on the pitch and, and we might well have them off the pitch more and more in the future as well. Oh, that's brilliant. And what was brilliant as well, we thank Justin Langer for giving us up his time. And he referenced Tom in there quite subtly as, as a mentor who gave him advice about dealing 
with the media, Thomas. I'm sure he's very thankful for that because it's, it's ever more prevalent. Thank you for putting a new word in the cricketing lexicon today. Pollinate is now into the cricketing lexicon, Thomas. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Freddie. Thank you very much, Tom. Cheers, uh, We look forward to our listeners tapping into this on the various platforms. Thank you.